Well, you guys ready to get started with the word this morning? Praise God. So, as I was preparing this message and I was looking back on it, I was reminded of a story when I was growing up. Now, when I was younger, um, wasn't the greatest Christian, didn't know I was going to be called to be a pastor, so I made some poor choices in my life. So I'm just about to turn 16, I'm a few months out, and I had purchased a, uh, a car. Um, it was like 500 bucks, it was like this 1980 Honda Civic hatchback, ugliest thing you ever saw, but I had bought it, it was mine. And it was going to be for when I turned 16. But in my infinite wisdom, I thought that it would be a good idea to sneak out at night and essentially steal my car and hang out with friends. And I had done this a couple times. But I remember one night in particular, I got up, snuck out the back door, made sure I left the back door unlocked, got out front, me and my buddy, jumped in the car, put it in neutral, and pushed it outside of our property. We lived on like a little over an acre. We lived out in the sticks and whetstone. And uh, anyway, we get out there and we push it out to the road, get it far enough away, we fire it up, and we go do our thing. And uh, it was just, I don't even remember the night at that point. I don't remember what it was like. I, I, I just remember when it was all said and done, we pull up, you know, we stop far away out, turn the lights, put it in neutral, and we push it back into the yard. And I I get in, and I sneak around to the back door, and I go to open the back door, and wouldn't you know, it was locked. Now, I had left it unlocked when I left the house that night, but it was locked now, so I knew what that meant. My parents had woken up. They found out that I had snuck out, and I was in some deep doo-doo. So what I did as I went back out to the car, and I slept in the car that night, because that seemed like a good idea. So I wake up in the morning when the sun's shining bright, and finally I have to face the music, and I have to go in there, and I knock on the door, and obviously my parents answer. They're, they're pissed, as you can imagine, you know, and they're, so I'm in trouble. I'm getting yelled at one down, up one side, down the other. You know, they're telling me, you know, how unsafe that was, what could have happened. I could have been, you know, all the things that could have gone wrong, and, and I'm just mad because, you know, as a kid, even even then, you know, how many know that when, when a kid gets in trouble, you know, their parents got them in trouble, <laughs> you know, but it wasn't, it was dumb. My parents didn't make me sneak out. They didn't make me do those. Dumb. Anyway, dumb kind of stuff. I'm mad at my parents. And on top of that, they ground me forever. And uh, on top of that, they made me sell the car. So I lost my car. I lost everything that was part of it. And I remember being so mad at them. They were doing these things. And it's interesting now because I can look back and I realize what my parents were doing, especially as a parent now. I realize what was going on. They were basically, what they they wanted was not for me to be unhappy. They didn't really want for me to not have a car. They didn't want me to be miserable, but they wanted me to learn and grow into a good man. They wanted me to grow up and be responsible. They wanted me to grow up and have some, some you know, good morals and good character. And that's what they were doing is this punishment and the, the, the stuff being taken away, being grounded. What it was was actually training for me to become a better person. And I want you guys to keep that in mind when we begin to see uh, leaders in the church rebuking the other parts of the church or disciplined by the Lord is that God doesn't want to take away your fun. He doesn't want you to be miserable, but he wants you to be safe. He wants you to be secure. He wants you to be reliant on him. And he's, when, when we are disciplined by our leaders or parents or, or, or even when the Holy Spirit convicts us, it's not to condemn us 
and make us feel worthless, but instead it's to spur us to growth. Amen? So let's keep that in mind as we begin to look through the Word today. First uh, scripture that we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 19. And we're going ahead and, and uh, continuing on in chapter 11 as we're going to the book of 1 Corinthians. And it says in verse 17, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So you remember that last week, at the beginning of this chapter, uh, Paul was dealing with, uh, was, was commending them for what they had been doing right, correct? So he said, you know what, I, I hear that you are, you've learned from me, you took the teachings and traditions that I've had, and you're practicing and applying, and I commend you for this, I commend you for doing these things. And then after he gets done, we also learned, right, that it's okay to do, that, it's, that there's a reality that you can be doing some things right and other things wrong. You can be getting it right in one area, but you're missing it in a, a completely different area. So that is what has happened here is that uh, they, they had gotten things right. They were listening, but now they're messing a pretty big thing up. And actually, if you think about the book of 1 Corinthians, this entire letter is almost entirely a rebuke. It's to correct what they are doing wrong, even though they are doing some things right. And the goal of, for us as Christians is to live all areas of our lives according to the will of God, not just parts of it. And we are going to get correction, correction. we're going to get rebuke, we're going to get reproof, we're going to be, God is going to nudge us either through our leaders, through the Holy Spirit, through reading his word, and to coming alongside what he wants for our lives. So now here comes the correction from Paul. And this is actually a pretty big one that we're going to deal with today. You will saw that uh, uh, the title was called The Lord's Supper. Paul is going to be dealing with communion today. And we're going to see that just like a parent corrects their children, that Paul is going to be, begin to correct his spiritual children. And it's not to hurt them, but it's rather to help them grow in who God intended them to be. Because if we don't grow, if we remain spiritual infants, if we remain spiritual children, we're never going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish in our lives. <laughs> so we started the book of 1 Corinthians um, talking, Paul dealt with the division in the church. That we dealt with, remember they said that I am of Paulos and I am of Paul. And there was already starting to become a division in the church. And then Paul go on and, and say that when you guys come together, I'm hearing that there are divisions among you too. And he says, I believe it. So what's happening now is not only were they dealing with, I'm from Paul, no, I'm from Apollos, no, I'm from Jesus. Now when they're getting together, the rich folks are going to be sitting by themselves. And the poor folks are over here by themselves. And there's, you know, never the twain shall meet. And there's divisions in the church when they're coming together to have fellowship with one another, to celebrate with one another, and particularly when they come together to have the Lord's Supper. There was no unity among the believers. And this division is harmful to the church. When we begin to separate and isolate ourselves, it begins to break the church apart. Matter of fact, it's why we have so many denominations today, because we've separated and isolated ourselves from one another instead of coming together and working together to reach a world that's lost for the kingdom of heaven, we've gotten to a situation where we just bicker and fight amongst ourselves. We've, there's division in the church. 
and it's harmful to the church. Imagine how much more we could accomplish as the church if we were all working together. Any time that there is division in the church, ultimately the mission of the church is harmed. And we're not going to be able to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, particularly in the time that he wants us to accomplish it. They said, they've said that for every generation, there has been enough time, money, people, resources to reach this world for Jesus Christ. Yet we haven't done it in every generation, even though we've had what we need. And what's happening here is this division is so prominent. This, this cataclysm is so huge that it's actually, he says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So what's happening is the factions, the division is so apparent that the ones who are not, the ones who are serving God the way that they're supposed to be, the ones who are loving people like they're supposed they're standing out like a sore thumb. They are standing out. He says that, that People can tell the difference. There's genuine among you because there's so many that aren't genuine. They stand out. The problem is, is that when this happens, we're, we're painting a, a, an incorrect picture of the church. The truth is, is that, that those who are not operating in love, those who are not operating in unity, those who are not sharing and loving and, and, and being uh, together, or should be the ones that are sticking out like a sore thumb. We shouldn't be seeing what Paul was seeing. The selfish and the stuck up and the egotistical should be the ones sticking out. It should be the norm that we come together in unity. Amen? The next slide is going to be 1 Corinthians 11, 20 through 21. And it says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. So here's the crux of the issue, what Paul is talking about. And we have to understand what the Lord's Supper is, or communion is. And we see that that's established in Matthew 26, verse 26 through 29. And this is Jesus that's speaking. And he says, now as they're eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is where the Lord's Supper gets established. And actually, if you read the story around this, if you go into Matthew chapter 26, you're going to find that this was actually a hard thing for some of the disciples to get their head wrapped around. They struggled with it. Matter of fact, many of the disciples that were following Jesus got up and left that day because they couldn't deal with what, what he was trying to say. And it's because they were taken. I mean, if you think about it today, that seems kind of weird as well. Uh, matter of fact, there's even some, some uh, uh, denominations of Christianity believe that the, the bread actually turns into Jesus' body, that the cup actually turns into his blood, and that's not what we believe or teach here. But really what Jesus is talking about is that, that when, you, when you take of me, when, when you eat of my body, that essentially that Jesus was going to be your life, your strength. Because that's what food is used for, right? When we eat... It gives us strength. It gives us sustenance. It gives us energy. It's what sustains us and keeps us going. And that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. It was 
basically to, to eat his, his body was to declare your reliance on him. And in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says this, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is what Jesus is talking about. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Eating Jesus' body is all about relying on him. It's to put your trust in him to make him your strength, to make him your, your source. Amen? So what's happening is, is Jesus gives them this, this ordinance um, in Matthew 26, and what would happen is the disciples, they would get together, they would have a, a, a meal time together. They would pray together. They would sing together. And then they would take the Lord's Supper. And what was happening in Corinth was just a little bit different. Because they weren't getting together to have fellowship with one another and pray and sing and then partake in communion. What was happening is, is instead of acting in unity and sharing with one another, they were separating themselves, and the rich people had plenty to eat, and they just went and, and had a gluttonous feast, and the poor people, they're supposed to be in the body, but they're not getting anything to eat. They're going hungry. And then the worst part is, is that some went hungry, and then some other ones were getting drunk. They were coming together, and as we're going to see, what communion is actually about is getting together and remembering Jesus, but instead of that, they were getting together, and they were making their own personal pleasures, their own personal gratification, the, the focus of this meal, and they're getting together, and, and some are going hungry, some are getting stuffed, and many are, are going drunk, and that was completely defeating the purpose of what communion or the Lord's Supper was supposed to be about. So Paul, that's what this part of this letter is about, is Paul correcting what they're doing. In 1 Corinthians 11.22, it says, What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul says, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Basically what Paul's saying, if you're going to act a fool, why don't you just do it at home? If you're going to, to be crazy and not follow the teaching, if you're going to come together and pretend to be a church, I mean, if you're going to act stupid, just do it at home. Don't do it in the church. Don't drag the name of the church through the mud. Don't drag the name of Jesus through the mud by your actions to satisfy your own personal desires. Paul had a real problem with what they were doing because it was casting a bad light on the church. And, it was, and as we're going to see, what it was really doing is casting a bad light on, on on what Christians thought of what Jesus had done for them. And the same is true for all of us, church. When we are living our lives, the moment that you say, I am a Christian, people are watching you. The Scripture says that we are a, a city on a hill, a light on a lampstand. I want you to know that you are shining, that you are that city on the hill, whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, as soon as you say you're a Christian. And people will begin to attribute to Christ and to God the things that you are doing. So if you say that you're a Christian and you're a jerk to people, people are going to begin to say, why do I want to be part of that? Why do I want to be a part of, I mean, Jesus must be a jerk if that's what his followers look like. If we want to be selfish, people are going to be like, why do I want to be a part of that? 
seems like the church is selfish or racist or unloving or non-inclusive or any other thing that we do that's not in line with what God is doing, who God is, we begin to put that label on Jesus Christ, on the church. And in this particular case, the, the, the rich came and they, they separated themselves from the poor because the poor couldn't bring as much food. And heaven forbid, the rich people would share. They wouldn't come together. And, and essentially, they were essentially humiliating the people that were poor. They might as well have just been standing there pointing fingers and laughing at those who didn't have enough. Because they were over on one side indulging in their stuff, drinking and getting drunk. And, and I imagine some of those who were poor, they weren't just hungry for the day. They were, they were genuinely starving and hungry. And the church should have been helping them out and supporting them. And, and this would have been a great time for people to come together and show love within the church. Because they said, this is how they'll know that you're my disciples, that if you have love for one another. That should have been what was being demonstrated and displayed, but it wasn't. And Paul is is a little upset at this because he says this is not the attitude that Christians should have. James 2, 1 through 4 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is essentially what they were doing. They were setting them, they were, they, the, the people that were rich were saying, I am worth more than the people who are poor. When the truth is, is that as far as God's concerned, we're all equal. Men, women, rich, poor, doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is, what you do for a living, you are loved and valuable by, to God. And he says, you know what? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I want you to know that Paul is not leaving any room for discussion here. Paul is not leaving any room for, well, in some cases, it's okay. The truth is, is that every believer is valuable to God. And we should be, when we come together, there shouldn't be divisions among us. There shouldn't be sections. There shouldn't be factions or cliques. And the truth is, right now, when we're a little bit smaller, it's not as big of a deal. Well, you know, that we only have enough people for one click, so we're it. But the reality is, is that as we grow, as we get bigger, there's going to be more people. And you're going to find that some people, maybe they, they invited somebody in so they only feel comfortable with them. So when somebody new comes in, if we don't in, uh, reach out to them and say hi and invite them into our family, they're going to feel like they're separate and they're, they're, they're pressed apart. But the truth is, is we are a family. We all should be coming together, supporting one another, having that time of fellowship with one another. That's one of the things when we do our fellowship lunch at the, the end of the month, uh, when I used to do the announcements, I always said that, hey, it's a bring and share, but if you can't bring anything, that's fine. We always have plenty of food, whether you didn't have time or you don't have the money right now, because I know there's some times when you just don't have the money. I know there's times when you just don't have the time. But we don't want to, to eliminate or, or separate or not invite people because we might have more than them in a certain area. As a matter of fact, we want to bring them into our blessing. Amen? 
But Paul says, if you're going to act differently, I won't commend you on this. And in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 24, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, you broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So now it's time to set the record straight, because apparently they either miss something or they're just choosing to ignore Paul's teaching. So he's going to reteach them about communion. And Paul was upset with their behavior because this was already one of the things that he had taught them. Have you ever had kids and you have to tell them the same thing 435 times? Think how God feels about you (laughs) and me. I know God said plenty of stuff to me over and over. But Paul is, 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 so we have here, Paul's like, I taught you guys this stuff, but let's go through it again. Let's, 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 let's clear out any questions that you might have. And he says, I want you to know that, that when we come together and we, we take communion, we're to remember what Jesus had done. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, when we take communion, we're supposed to remember what Jesus has done. And in this case, Jesus' body was broken and disfigured and just mangled beyond what any of us would recognize so that we could be made whole, so that that we could have healing in our body, so that we could be whole in Him. He did this for us. And when we celebrate communion, we're remembering what He has accomplished for us in His body. And ultimately, He gave His life. And this is not to be taken lightly. This is not, see, that's the thing what was happening is here. They're getting together, and instead of remembering the incredible and awesome thing that Jesus did for them, they were just eating and getting drunk. They completely ignored the whole purpose of the celebration. And they were just doing it flippantly. How can you ignore Such a great sacrifice and such a great gift. How can you come together for this and completely ignore what Jesus has done for you? How could it be? And this is something, church, to think about when we're taking communion as well. How can we come together and make it a a time about us instead of a time that's about Him? Amen? Go ahead and go to the next slide. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five through 26, he goes on to say, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Note that again. He says once again, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So now we're talking about the, the uh, fulfillment of, of the old covenant in the new covenant. And Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant. So to understand it, we kind of have to have an idea of what the old covenant was. So previous to Jesus, people could only approach God through priests and the sacrificial system. The, the, if you look in the Old Testament, anytime someone thought they saw God, they, were, they knew they were going to die because you couldn't just go and speak to God. Matter of fact, when Moses who's one of the, the, the only person that saw God on this earth, when he saw him, God said, you know what? I'm going to have to turn my back to you because you, you can't handle seeing the front. We, you can't just come and speak to me like that. 
And then later on, we find out that in Moses' relationship, he would speak to him as a friend face to face. But Moses is the only one. In that old system, people could not go. You and I could not just talk to God. We would have to go to the temple. We'd have to offer sacrifices. The priests could go inside the temple. But even the, the Holy of Holies, the central where God actually was, only the, the high priest could go in only once a year. And, and it was a big deal because if he did anything wrong and didn't go in there correctly, he would die. So they actually tied a rope around his waist and he had bells on him because if the bell stopped and the rope started moving, they had to drag him out of there because something had went wrong. And God would only forgive people's sin at that time if they would bring animals for sacrifice. And the reason for this is, as we know in the book of Romans, it says the wages of sin is death. So there is a penalty for sin. There always is. That's never going to change. The penalty of sin is death. So at that time, they would, for the sins they had committed, they would sacrifice an animal, and the blood of that animal would pay for their sins. And this sacrifice, the sacrificial system was begun. This was the, the, the agreement between God and human beings, and it was actually sealed with the blood of animals. And the whole purpose of this is so that, that men and women could be forgiven of their sins because somebody had to pay that penalty, and those animals would take on the penalty of the person's sin. But the problem with this system was is that the, the, the blood of an animal did not permanently deal with sin. Matter of fact, they, they had morning sacrifices and evening sacrifices and, and all the different uh, uh, holidays they would have sacrifices. And, and I mean, they were sacrificing animals left and right. And, and in the book of Hebrews, they even point out that if this was sufficient, they wouldn't have had to keep making them year after year. So the blood of animals did not permanently deal with sin. So God, in his infinite wisdom, said, you know what? There's no way that humans can take care of it. The blood of animals is not going to take care of it. So he sent his son to pay the price for our sins. And that's what this cup represents. It's the new covenant that God has made with his people. And under this covenant, instead of bulls and the blood and bulls of goats paying for sin, Jesus takes our place. And dies for us, paying the penalty for our sins. And unlike the blood of bull and goats, this sacrifice has cleansed us from sin once and for all. In Hebrews 9.28, it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. And when he comes back, he's not dealing with sin that's why I always find it interesting when, when Christians are standing on the side of the road saying that adulterers and murderers and, and abortionists and, and gay and lesbian people, they're all going to hell because of what they're doing, when the truth is that nobody's going to hell because of their sin. They're going to hell for one simple reason. You either accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and your sin was paid for, or you don't. It's not the things that you do. It's not the, the, the things that, that we live and do throughout our life because it's an identity that we're dealing with. We are either a sinner because we've not received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, or we are a saint because we have. And that's the question that when you stand before God, if you're a Christian, he's not going to say, well, what about all this stuff that you did? He's going to see that Jesus paid the price. But if you're a sinner and you don't receive that free gift, the reason you're going to hell is because you didn't. And then you will have to answer in judgment for the stuff that you have done. But this new covenant didn't do away with the law either. 
This new covenant fulfilled the law. The scripture says that, that, that Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, but he would fulfill every letter of the law, that he would fulfill it completely. And what did the law say? The law says that there has to be a penalty, a price paid for sin. Blood has to be shed for sin. So Jesus came and he shed his blood for us. So many people think that the new covenant replaces the old covenant, but it does not. It actually fulfills it. And as a result, we, you and I, everybody in this room, even the the person that's just been saved the shortest amount of time, can now approach God. They can now speak to God face to face. When, when Jesus gave up his life, the veil was torn. And that veil that you hear about was the veil that, that, that covered the entrance to the Holy of Holies where God was. That was to symbolize that no longer it's only a, could a priest go in there, but any of us could enter into the Holy of Holies and speak to, to Jesus face to face. Ephesians 3:11 through 12 says this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him we can approach the throne of God we have access and we can approach it in boldness because of what Jesus has done and then he goes on to say Jesus said do this in remembrance of me I want you to to pay special attention to what he says there. Because there's so many times that, especially when I was growing up, I took part in many different communions at different churches. And one of the things that that I remember always being mentioned was this was a time that you had to get right with God. When you partook in communion, this was a time that you had to, to just really think about your sins you know, and begin to, 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 to focus on them and somehow make your amends with God so you can be right with Him. And even oftentimes that time of prayer beforehand, they would, they would say that as, you know, that as the elements are being passed out or before you come up to the table to get them or, you know, take this time to pray and, and get right with God. I want you to know, church, that you can't get right with God. There's nothing that you can do on your own to get right with God. If you're a Christian, the good news is you're already right with God. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are right with God. And it's not about the things that you've done. It's not about feeling guilty enough over your sins. It's not about feeling sorry enough for your sins. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that sin is okay. It's not. We're to live holy. Jesus died for you, not so you could sin, but so you could live without sinning. You are free from those things. But communion is not a time to focus on your failures. Communion is a time to focus on his success. So if you have sinned, take it to the Lord and say, thank you, Father, that I am forgiven for this, instead of just focusing on that and internalizing it and somehow thinking that if you feel guilty enough that God's going to forgive you. He's not forgiving you for what you've done. He's forgiving you because of what his son did. And you are, that's why he says to do this in remembrance of me. It doesn't say as, you, as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of sin. It's in remembrance of him. Amen? And the next verse in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And you're like, wait a minute, Pastor Wayne, you just said that I was already right with God. Now what's all this stuff here? First, I want you to know that when you're reading this, he doesn't say whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord 
and is unworthy. He says who does it in an unworthy manner. So one, we have to understand that what Paul is dealing with is not your, your being right with God. This has nothing to do with being right with God. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are worthy because he's made you that. He's, he's considered you worthy in his Son. What Paul is dealing with is, is how we view taking communion, not what's going on inside of us. If we begin to see communion as just some, uh, another religious custom or some religious tradition, then we are partaking in communion in an unworthy manner. If we partake in communion and our whole focus is on our sin, then we're doing it in an unworthy manner. But if you eat in faith, remembering what he did for you, then you are doing it in a worthy manner. And being guilty of the blood and body is to eat without remembering and believing that he died for you, that he gave his life for you so that you could be made whole, that you could be forgiven. In essence, to treat the symbols of Christ's ultimate sacrifice flippantly without thankfulness and without honor is to be guilty of having the same attitude of his actual body being broken and his actual blood being shed. To, to, be, to act flippantly and not care about the things that we do to remember those things is, is essentially the same as saying, I just don't care about the real things either. And that's what the problem that's going on here. And instead of honoring Christ's sacrifice, those who ate unworthily were ultimately sharing in the same attitude of those who had put Jesus on the cross in the first place. And that's what it's talking about. It's eating in a, man, in a, in a worthy or an unworthy manner has to do with, with your mindset, with your, with your attitude when you take communion. Are you just ignoring what he's done? It's just another time to, to, to have some grape juice and a cracker? Or are we actually celebrating what Jesus Christ has done for us? Amen? And in verse 28, he goes on to say, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Not judging the body rightly is to essentially reject Jesus. And we already know that if you reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you've already been judged. That's what the Scripture says in John 3.18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Other translations do say judged. Say whoever believes in Him is not judged. Whoever does not believe is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So examining ourselves when Paul's talking about it is not about finding fault in ourselves. It's not about finding the areas where we've messed up or we've dropped the ball. Examining ourselves is to recognize that in Jesus Christ that we are pure, that we are whole. It's to have a right view and a right attitude about ourselves because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished inside of ourselves. That's what we're to examine. If you were to see yourself like God saw yourself, you would be blown away. If you were to see yourself how God thought of you and realize that when he looks at you, he doesn't see your mistakes, he doesn't see your failures. When he examines you, he doesn't see imperfections, he sees Jesus. 
He sees holiness. He sees righteousness. He sees someone that has been forgiven and redeemed. He sees someone that is strong and victorious. When we examine ourselves, we need to see ourselves how God sees ourselves, by what He has accomplished through His Son. Amen? It's also a time to think about how we're approaching the communion table. Is this just another meal for us? Is this just something that we do on the first Sunday of the month? Just an extra thing that we do? Or is it a time where we're remembering the great work of Jesus Christ on the cross and appreciating what He has accomplished in us? And then He goes on to say for... for Can you go one more slide forward? Go back one. Am I missing verse 30 on there for some reason? It appears so. That one says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now this is something that people read this and they're like, what the heck is he talking about here? If I do this wrong, that means I'm going to die? What's actually happening here is that, that the, being weak and, weak and sick or asleep, which is just another word for dead, is not something that God does to us if we can t- take communion correctly. It's not God just waiting up there with a big stick, just waiting for you to mess up. What's happening here is that what we just talked about, when we take communion in an incorrect manner, in an incorrect way, what we are doing is essentially rejecting what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. We don't have a real appreciation of what actually happened. If we can't even appreciate this moment that we remember it, we, we don't even have an appreciation of what really happened. But if you are walking with the Lord, you are trusting Him, your faith is in Him, then healing is yours. Wholeness is yours. But when we're operating in our lives in a way that, that we have such little faith that we can't even take the time to remember what He's done for us, it puts us in a position where we can't receive the blessing that God has for us. We essentially reject what He wants to do in our life. And it was causing some of them problems. Instead of them being able to take hold of what was rightfully theirs in Jesus Christ, they were just living life like they always did. It's because they didn't receive the deliverance that was rightfully theirs. And the truth is, without faith in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, it's impossible to participate in the blessing and promises that are guaranteed to us in Him. The Scripture says that the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. And if we can't even have faith in what He did for us on the cross, how can we have faith in those other things? 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one through 32 says, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what does judging ourselves rightly look like? Like I said, it's to view yourselves in the light of what Jesus Christ has done inside of you. Like Paul says that, that uh, I'm sorry, and uh, John says that, that whoever believes in him is not condemned, is not judged. But when the Lord has a problem with the things that we are doing, the Holy Spirit will convict you. The Holy Spirit will begin to put fingers on stuff that you're doing in your life that you need to change, that you need to course correct, that you need to adjust. 
sometimes he'll do it through his word. You'll be reading his word and you're, you'll, you'll just know your eyes will be opened as the Holy Spirit is pointing something out in your life that needs to be corrected. Sometimes he'll use people in your life, people that you are, are in fellowship with or that you're friends, people that you can trust, that you've given permission to speak in your life. They'll begin to say, to be able to share things with you, to help you get through those areas. He'll use pastors or other leaders in your life to point things out. And he doesn't do this to, to make your life, to make you feel bad. It's not about pointing out failures. It's so we don't fall back into what we've been delivered from. It's so we don't get wrapped up in those things that can suck us down and pull us back down. Paul rebuking the Corinthian church, what he's doing right now, was not to tell them that they messed up and they failed and might as well just get out of here. The whole purpose was so that they could course correct and begin to walk in the, the will of God, walk in what God wanted for their lives. They weren't in a situation where they were missing out on the blessings and the freedom and the deliverance and the wholeness that was theirs in Jesus Christ. He wanted them to have every blessing that was theirs in Jesus. But if we allow ourselves to reject what Christ has done, to reject salvation, we end up being in the same boat, condemned along with the rest of the world. If we reject what he has done, then we're in the same boat. So let's judge ourselves rightly. Let's examine ourselves truly and realize that in him we're forgiven. We are whole. We are righteous. We are redeemed. That our sin has been paid for as far from us as the east as from the west. We are victorious. We are overcomers. We are more than conquerors. And I don't just make these words up. There's a scripture for every word that I just said that says that this is who you are in Jesus Christ. We need to examine ourselves and see ourselves as that. And then we'll end here at the end of chapter 11. In verse 33 it says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat... Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you direction when I come. Previously, this was a rebuke, but now it's the instructions to get back on track. It says, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. First, actually think about one another. Consider somebody else is more important than yourselves. Wait for everybody to come together to take communion. And he says, if you're hungry, if, if you can't get past the idea that this just isn't a meal to, to, to fill your belly, then eat at home. Get, get rid of that even being an option. Because when you come together, it's to, to remember what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's to have fellowship with other believers. It's to include one another inside each other's lives and not to separate people based on their, their economic class or their, the color of their skin or how, or, or how much money they have or who they voted for or any of those things. We come together in unity with love for one another. Come to this table with the right frame of mind, is what Paul is saying. Come together, loving one another. Come together and remember what Jesus has done for you. Because that's the important part of communion. It's not a time to celebrate ourselves. It's not a time to focus on our sins. But instead, it's a time to focus on what Jesus Christ has accomplished inside each and every one of us. Amen? And the last thing he says, apparently there was some other stuff that that uh, wasn't as urgent to deal with in a letter or wasn't as important. I don't know what it was. There's a lot of things that we read like this in the Bible. I wish we had access 
to what else was going on because we, we, we get the, the big stuff in the, in the Word, and we get that stuff taken over. There's some stuff where we have smaller questions, and I imagine they had these same smaller questions as well. Paul said, I'll deal with it in person. But I do know this, that if it was important enough that God needed to have a mandate on it, he would have put it in his word. Otherwise, that's when we use, uh, a lot of it's just common sense. A lot of it's spending time in the word because if you are in step with the Holy Spirit, then the scripture says that the thoughts are his thoughts and you can be on the same page. Amen? Amen.